Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 30th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Julia Austin, who wears many different hats these days. She is a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, board member, angel investor, and advisor to several emerging tech companies. Julia saw her career skyrocket upon joining Akamai in the early days of the company, where she eventually held the position as VP of Engineering. From there, she went on to hold leadership roles at VMware and was recently the CTO at DigitalOcean. Julia is the definition of someone who knows how to pay it forward in terms of her involvement in the Boston tech ecosystem. In this episode, we cover lots of topics like Julia's background and the evolution of her career, what it takes to become a great product manager, best practices around hiring and how the first employees define your culture, the criteria she looks for when she is making investments, plus a lot. Okay, quick side note. If you haven't heard already, we have some really exciting news to share. VentureFizz recently expanded to New York City. Yes, it's true, and we couldn't be more excited. It's no secret that the New York tech scene is thriving with so many amazing companies like Casper, Warby Parker, DigitalOcean, BuzzFeed, and many others. The energy there is infectious. Well, we are now delivering the same great features in terms of jobs, biz pages, and all the stories of the people and companies who are powering the ecosystem there. Make sure you visit VentureFizz.com where you'll be able to toggle between the content from the two cities. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our new weekly email for the New York tech scene. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Julia. Julia, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Well, let's uh, take a step back. I love to hear the person's journey of their uh, background, even going way back. So like, where did you grow up? What did your parents do for work? Sure. Uh, so I grew up here in Boston, in the Boston area in Framingham. Uh, I'm a Boston girl. And uh, my dad was a civil engineer and my mom was a teacher and a writer. And um, went to UMass Amherst, went to BU for grad school. So I truly am a local person. Mm-hmm. Uh, my undergraduate degree was actually in art, where a lot of people ask me how you end up doing what you do when you were an art major. But when right. I was an undergrad, and not to date myself too much, uh, doing computer graphics and CAD and those types of things were all programming. Mm -hmm. And my dad actually taught me to code when I was eight. Uh, It's a whole story unto itself. But I was always interested in computers and technology, and he was uh, very into sci-fi and um, future things. And so uh, that's really where things got started for me was, I would say deeply, was in in, uh, undergrad at UMass. So was he teaching you basic and what was your first computer that you learned to program on? Yeah. So uh, my dad, you know, as I said, he was a civil engineer and on the weekends he would take me into his office and keep me busy so my mom could write uh, by giving me Byte Magazine, which is this big, thick magazine. And he mm-hmm. would find these I remember programs. It. Yeah. He'd find these programs where um, he would want to use them. There'd be like algorithms or calculations or something he needed for his work. And he would just tell me to type it into one of his TRS 80s. He was a collector. So he had at least five of the different models of the Radio Shack trash 80s. And I would just type everything in and uh, he would tell me to type run. And if it, if it gives you an answer, you did it right. And if it didn't figure out what you did wrong, which was basically debugging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I was doing it, I didn't realize I was programming. I just thought I was doing something fun at dad's office and I uh, did that for years, and then that just evolved where he started having me do administrative work when I got a little bit more savvy. And so I was in front of a computer, again, at eight years old uh, in, the, in the 70s, <laughs> so <laughs> a really long time ago. Um, that's where things started. It wasn't actually in school. It was more with dad. 
so I used to do the same thing. I had, I would go to like the bookstore in the mall and I'd buy a book of programs or one of those computer magazines. And I had a Texas Instruments TI 99 4A. Yeah. And I would just type in the game and then, you know, hit run and it would come up and be like, oh my God, that's amazing. So yeah, uh, yeah I kind of, I, but I never took the next step of actually learning how to write my own code. I just had fun writing other people's. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. And even, you know, uh, dad always, because he was really into science fiction, he would buy things like the first Atari and the first whatever. And mm-hmm. so we we're playing Pong, like at night, that was what we did for fun, you know. Was oh, that's awesome. Pong. Yeah. So I was always exposed to it really young and fascinated about how it worked. And I wasn't sure how it was going to come together with my interest in art, um, but it certainly evolved that way. So after you graduated from UMass with an art degree, like how did your career get started? And you know, take us to the progression to, you know, then we'll talk a lot about Akamai. Yeah, sure. So right after school, uh, true story, I wanted to backpack around Europe by myself for the summer. And even though I was 21 years old, my dad told me I wasn't allowed to unless I had a job to come back to. I guess me because I was living with him. And so he wanted to be sure I wasn't just going to be scrounging off of him. Okay. So I found this little tiny trade association um, in Wellesley, Mass, that was had written their own software for their members. It was a inventory sales management type tool, and there were six people. It was really a startup, but this was before the term startup was even a term uh, that we all used. And it was a great opportunity for me. There were six people in the office. I got to do everything from training to uh, debugging to help desk documentation, crawling around the floor, installing cables and wires, whatever they needed us to do. I did that for two years, and it was a real um, proof point for me to say, this is what I want to do. I like working with people who use software. I like talking to – I used to work with the uh, contractors that we use to build the product and talk to them about priorities and what users really want versus what they imagine they want. Um, I mean, early product management stuff when I was right out of school, and I just loved it. I thought it was fun. Um, But what I felt was I wasn't technical enough and really didn't understand – what happened to make that code work uh, at a level that I felt I needed to, to really manage and work with engineers. So that's when I went back to grad school and got my uh, MS at BU, which was a pretty new program. It was a dual MS MBA and also true story. I never finished the MBA. Uh, It's another story for another day uh, because I really didn't need it. I got the MS, but it was a nice dual uh, opportunity to be exposed to more business type things that I hadn't been exposed to in undergrad, but also I learned how to code Pascal and COBOL and C and uh, did a lot of interesting projects with uh, an internship. That was at New England Medical Center, which ended up, this was in the 90s when no one, early 90s when no one was getting a job. So I ended up at NEMIC. Uh, as a analyst in the IT department working on systems, uh, mostly doing uh, software selection, implementation, and support for uh, materials management systems. So for me, it, I took that. Mostly I needed a job, but also it was a very transferable skill. It was something where I said I wasn't sure I wanted to commit to healthcare, uh, but if I could work on products that could be used in another type of environment or industry, it was a, a good way to go. So I did that for a few years after grad school was really fun and interesting. And then I decided I wanted to get a little tighter on my business skills. So I went to Coopers and Libran. So this is pre-PWC. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really was, I was on a mission. I wanted more exposure to different industries. I wanted to be kind of uh, groomed, if you will, for the boardroom. So uh, how do you do board level presentations? How do you really assess the strategy of a business? Uh, those types of things, as well as, again, being across uh, multiple industries. Although it was hard, coming from healthcare, everyone kept putting me on healthcare accounts, which Mm -hmm. at one point, like 30 hospitals I was working with, uh, which is nuts. Um, But it was really fun. And um, 
I liked it. I liked it a lot. I was partner tracked actually uh, while I was on maternity leave with my first kid. Uh, they promoted me and said, this is your destiny. This is what you're going to do. Ah. Um, and then I thought of it as I'm kind of an operator. Like I like being in it more than I like being outside of it. So I got the opportunity to go to Partners Healthcare, which was a client of ours. And this was right when Partners was formed. So this is when Mass General and Brigham and Women's Hospital came together and said, let's make this thing called Partners. And it was just the two major hospitals. That was it. And my former boss from New England Medical Center was hired to do all their financial administrative systems, which they had selected PeopleSoft to do. Mm -hmm. And he said, do you want to do this as a consultant or do you want to come here and do this for me full time? And I said, full time, please. (laughs) So that was really fun. I got to uh, build a team from scratch, zero to 40 people. We co-developed a module with PeopleSoft where my first chance to work with Silicon Valley engineers and build a software product. And, you know, mm-hmm. ERP was very hot at the time. Uh, we rolled out the product to 25,000 users across the hospital system. And uh, for all of their administrative stuff, uh, HR, payroll, general ledger, anything to do with the monies and the materials. And um, it was fun. But then once it was implemented, I was kind of like, okay, now what? <laughs> so, but it was one of those moments where I said, you know, so we all have moments in our careers where we say, I like this and this is cool. And I liked working with the engineers and again, defining the product and uh, co-building uh, something for, at the time, you know, healthcare is pretty behind in technology. And so we were talking to everywhere from guys on the, on the loading docks, bringing supplies to patient floors to nurses, you know, ordering bedpans for patients and that was, it was fascinating to me. How do I get them to understand how to use this product and, and embrace this product when things like cell phones didn't exist yet, right? They weren't used to using technology on a, on a day-to-day basis. So that really lit the fire for me that I wanted to do more uh, on the product side. Got it. Okay. And then is, was that what brought you to Akamai? Is that, yeah. yeah. So when I was at Partners, one of the consultants that I worked with who I had hired to help us with our QA test program for, I mean, people's office is pretty complicated. So just putting in patches and releases was, was a process. Mm-hmm. Uh, his brother-in-law had just taken a position at Akamai and he was one of the MIT mafia who had left MIT, was at UT Austin uh, as a professor. And they said, come back and help us start this little company uh, coming out of MIT and he said, you know, there are all these really smart MIT scientists, and most of them have never done anything in business, software, nothing. They're just brilliant um, inventors. Right. So uh, well, you should go talk to them. So I went and talked to them. And, and as I started talking with them, it was interesting because they were like, you didn't go to MIT. You don't have a PhD. You don't even have a computer science degree. I did have my MS, but it wasn't the same. And uh, what are you going to do for us? And I said, you know, so you're doing this internet thing, which was still pretty new. And I said, it sounds like you guys are getting ready to go public because they were. This was pre-IPO. I didn't know anything, by the way, about anything to do with going public or nothing, nothing about IPOs. And, and this is uh, 1999 just for like, like, like how many employees was Akamai at the time? Uh, well, when I was interviewing, there were about 50. Uh, when I finally wow. joined, there were about, I was like employee to 16 or something. So they were hiring an average of 35 people a week because it was pre-IPO and everyone wanted to get in with a low strike price. Sure. It's crazy. So uh, I asked them, you know, when you guys push the bits out to the network, how do you know whether everything's okay and it doesn't break because you've got servers all over the world? They only had a few hundred servers back then. This is now they have like tens, if not hundreds of thousands, right? But back then they had very few, but how do you control and manage that? 
And they said, we don't, we just like push it out. And if it breaks, <laughs> we push out more. And I was like, dudes, like, oh my God, can't, you can't be a public company and operate that way. Right. Uh, so even though I really knew nothing about the internet, I was dying to learn about it. I love networking when I was in grad school. So I was like, you teach me about networking and I'll teach you how to put a process in place that actually will make sure that we don't break Microsoft and CNN and other big assets that they were adding onto the network. And this was early internet days, right? This was before streaming. This was before every company had a website. This was only like the big companies had a website. Most pages were not dynamic. They were all static pages with lots of ugly HTML and yes, pretty, pretty bad stuff. So, so that was a huge leap of faith. I just had my second kid and I was like, everyone thought I was crazy. I had this cushy job at partners where I, you know, I worked like nine to four and work from home on Fridays. And, and I was like, yeah, but how, how much fun would this be? Plus the company's going to go public, you know, it could, could be really cool. So I went for it. And then the, like, I remember the IPO is monster. Like what, was was crazy. It the, wasn't it the largest of its time? Like whatever the multiple was that day. Yeah. I forget the exact yeah, forget. number. So I don't want to say it exactly, but it was, yeah. we, we came out at like, I think it was like 29 or something is what we came out at. And like, <laughs> we closed at like a hundred and something. And then it went up into the 200. It was nuts. Um, but yeah. by the time we could do anything after the lockup, it had settled down a bit. But it was crazy. It was really crazy. And it was a really fun. I was really, really lucky to be in a small conference room with the employees that came in to watch us go public, including the founders who did not go ring the bell. They actually stayed in the room with us, which was pretty awesome in Cambridge. And, and, and we had it up on the screen and just watched the price. And we were like, oh, my God. I can't believe this is happening. Um, and I was just, you know, the release man. I was their only release manager. So I wasn't like one of the founders, but um, it was pretty incredible. And it really changed the dynamic of the company because now we were speaking to the street and much more mindful of our shareholders. So now you're in this company that's just flying, right? And it's kind of like the backbone of the internet. And this seemed to be like the evolution of your career where you really started to, you know, you did a lot of part at partners, but uh, very quickly, you started the rise of the ranks of Akamai, ultimately to a VP of engineering role. So how did you make that transition? Yeah, so it's a, it's sort of been the story of my career has been uh, where there's a need, I, I sort of go there and figure out how I can be helpful. So I came in as a release manager, not even knowing what that was. Uh, and really, it came down to putting in a process in place that then evolved into me running all of um, program management for the business and just making sure that we were making good product and program decisions, it was a much more of a product management type role, even though we called it program management because we're prioritizing features and, and trains and release schedules. And then, um, and then we went through a transition with leadership and uh, they started looking for a new head of engineering. And this is one of my favorite career sort of milestone stories is I just accepted they were going to hire somebody new over me. And my peers went to the founders and said, this is silly. Julia already tells us what to do every day and we really <laughs> rely on her and she mentors and guides us. Will you just give her the job? It was very much a deer in the headlights moment for me. Like, you want, you want me to do that? Like, seriously? Uh, okay. <laughs> um, so it was fun. It was hard. It was definitely the hardest job I ever had. I wouldn't say was great at it. I, I probably wasn't. Uh, this is my first time doing anything at that scale. And I lovely people to work with, brilliant, brilliant uh, leaders and engineers that I got to work with. And it ranged, it was very administrative in a lot of ways in that I was managing remote. Uh, we had three offices in California, uh, which was very new and not as trendy as it is now to be bi-coastal or, or multi-site or fully remote. Um, so managing all of that, uh, Silicon Valley 
culture versus the MIT sort of academic culture was very different. Uh, managing a lot of heavy bu budget stuff because it was very capital intensive business. Uh, so that was, um, and then obviously we were growing our products from the, while I was there, we went from one to 17. Uh, so it was nuts, uh, just growing the team. And uh, we grew up while I was there, I would say we we're close to 2000 employees. So we went from me interviewing with 50 employees to almost 2000. And then 9-11 happened. Um, we lost our founder on the first plane, which was tragic and, and devastating, uh, but also a rallying cry for the business because we all were so inspired by Danny that uh, we basically said Danny would have it no other way than for us to just make this an amazing business without him, right? We can't just say we're only a business with Danny. And that was, uh, again, sort of from a career standpoint, when you go through something like that with your coworkers, you know, we cried together, we suffered together, uh, but we also rallied together. Uh, it was really transformational for us to, to be there and take his vision, which weirdly he imparted to us the night before. Uh, crazy story there. But uh, we just went, that's what he wanted. Let's go do it. And we did. Um, but there was a lot of other things going on, right? Again, internet bust happened. Um, we had to do a lot of layoffs. We had to cut way back on product and our product roadmap. And I happened to have a third baby in the middle of all that. So I was like, okay, this is fun, but how about I go do this for a while? So I actually took two and a half years off at that point and, um, and raised my kids for a little while. Good for you. Yeah. That's important. But then the, the, so somehow you got lured back. So you ended up at VMware next? Yeah. So I've done this twice. So I left and came back. So, uh, I left. I didn't know really what I was going to do. I joined a couple boards and really was focused on family. And then uh, VMware called on a wintry night in 2004 and said, hey, uh, we just got acquired by EMC and we can't grow fast enough on the West Coast. And we heard that we should hire you to help us build an office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. What do you think? And I was like, what? Like, I don't really want to do that. Uh, <laughs> happily raising my babies. And um, but also, I love the opportunity, and they, they offered me a free trip to California to go meet some people and interview, and I hadn't seen my buddies in California in two and a half years, so I said, sure, I'll, I'll take you up on that. And I fell in love. I fell in love with the business, the people. They were my kind of people, right? Really, really smart, interesting, humble company. Like Diane really nailed it with the culture and made sure that we were, even though we were killing it, that we weren't stupid and, and really built something smart to scale, which clearly uh, we did. So there were 800 employees when I came on board, mostly just in Palo Alto, and I was charged with opening their first non-PA office, and uh, we scaled the business to 15,000 over the eight years that I was there, which is kind of crazy. Uh, when I first joined, I was just site director for Cambridge, and that was it, and I thought I'd maybe be there for a year or two and teach them how to be bi-coastal, <laughs> <laughs> and then I ended up uh, joining forces with Diane's husband, Mendel, who was our head of research at the time. He's a Stanford researcher that the product came out of, and um, we started the VMware Academic Program and started doing research with academia all over the world, uh, both for recruiting but also to do develop new IP. And um, then I started, I was, so from there I was uh, head of all of global R&D. So we started opening up offices worldwide, either strategically because we couldn't say sell in China unless we had development in China. Um, we bought companies in Israel, in France, in London. We 
everywhere. So we started uh, opening R&D offices all over the world. And so I managed all of those offices, which was really fun too. And about a dozen site directors worldwide that reported to me and um, got to travel a lot, which was really fun, uh, sometimes with my kids. And then uh, my do- at one point there, I think at year six, I had four jobs. And so I said, I'd like to have one, please. <laughs> so I, uh, I had just started the mobile uh, virtualization project, which we built a mobile hypervisor, which was a non-x86 ARM processor hypervisor, which was an assertion. This was in 2007 uh, when we had said, what if these phones actually become the next desktop and they're running on a different processor than desktops and servers do. So we should be able to put a virtual machine on them. And so we did that as an experiment and that ended up becoming a funded project. And then we liked how that went. We sort of created it in the office of the CTO and we said we should do more of these and do an experiment that sort of started with academia and then became a product for the business. So they asked me to do that full time. So I took that product as the prototype model for how do we incubate and build other innovations. Um, What does that look like? So I became VP of innovation there my last couple of years at VMware and we experimented with a, a bunch of different things. We had a annual innovation event. We had a venture fund program. We had hackathons, which they still have. Um, all of those things, all the things that I created, they still do. Uh, and that was really, really fun. So that was a chance at sort of the tail end of my career there to make sure the business was going to continue to innovate and, um, and also be the voice of innovation for the company with customers and, and partners, et cetera. So that was really fun. And I was there for eight years. It was amazing. I have incredible relationships and success stories from that and a couple of failures too, of course. And uh, it was just big. It was really big. And uh, we had gone through three CEOs while I was there and it was a lot of change. And I decided it was just time to go back to startup land. So that's what I did. And then you went to DigitalOcean next? Well, not right away. So I took another couple of years off again. Yes. Um, so I, let, I don't tend to, when, especially after big things like that, I believe, and this is just general career advice, that it's a good mm-hmm. idea, uh, especially if you've been somewhere for a long time and it was an intense role to just take a break and regroup. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was plugging back into Boston and really getting to know the startup community here because I didn't. I was very VMware, uh, very Palo Alto, very international. I was not local, which is ironic when you consider that. I was born, raised, and educated here, and uh, <laughs> what's going on in Boston? So met a lot of great people. I think I actually met you during that time frame, and mm-hmm. Scott Kirzner, and a bunch of other you know phenomenal angels in town, and venture folks in town, Katie Ray, and Andy Palmer, and just like this amazing group of humans that were uh, here in Boston who connected me, uh, started working with Techstars Boston, made my first angel investments that first year. I uh, started to really understand what that meant because I didn't have any idea what it meant to sign a term sheet and, and actually mm-hmm. say goodbye to my money. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so that was fun and loved working with really early stage companies and realized that there were so many things I'd learned in these other businesses, especially taking tech companies to scale that I took for granted because I'd done it twice, both at Akamai and, and VMware and these young companies, like just what you think is no big deal for us is a really big deal. Help us do it. And that's how I ended up at DO, uh, DigitalOcean. So I had met them right at the same time I joined HBS, actually, and was just going to be an advisor and somehow ended up being their CTO. <laughs> uh, but it's the same thing. Company grew exponentially in five years, like crazy, crazy growth. And um, just 
didn't know how to work at scale and had basically gone for two years without releasing a new product. And it was a little worrisome because they had great things to release. They just didn't really have the right process in place and road mapping and everything to think about around product to do it. So I came in there and did it, which was really fun. And helped them launch a presence in Boston too with their Cambridge office. That's right. Right. So we did. So their company itself is about 50% remote. Uh, they have outstanding remote culture, like something I dreamed of building at some of the other companies um, that I was at, but they were very intentional on day one. Um, so opening an office in Cambridge was a no brainer. It worked obviously well for me, but it wasn't just for me. The talent in Boston was just perfect for DigitalOcean, right? All those skills, storage, networking, uh, everything is there's it's so prominent here in Boston. It was the perfect place to be and not very far from New York. So ideal from a, you know, proximity to headquarters, time zone, all that stuff. It was perfect. So we did that and we shipped seven things that while I was there, which was really fun and important for the business and uh, 2x our employee base and built a real leadership team and did a lot of really good things. Well, I remember when you were starting to get um, intertwined in the Boston tech ecosystem, it was uh, like just great because Boston at that time needed more people that had the experience at the scale that you did. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of the collective names that you already mentioned, it's just like, there's been so much more uh, mentorship that people needed as founders that, um, you know, people that have experience scaling, whether it's engineering, operations, whatever the case may be, being a product to market is so critical to help keep the Boston ecosystem thriving like it is today. And another thing that I thought was really important as far as uh, your experience and background is product management. Hmm. Um, you know, so my background being a recruiter, product management was kind of where I built this niche. And um, there wasn't, you know, you don't graduate with a product management degree, although you are teaching product management at HBS now. So that's really fascinating. So you published a piece that was um, in the Harvard Business Review that basically took on this topic of what does it take to become a great product manager? And I don't think many people would have a good answer to that. So I'd love your point of view on that. Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting role. And one of the important things that I point out in the piece is it's not a write one job description and you've defined a product manager. It's so much is dependent on the type of business you're in, the type of product you're building, the culture, uh, what the, if it's early stage, how the founders operate, you know, product founders versus more sales oriented or operational founders. So there isn't just one type of thing like you should be a product manager because you, you click these three boxes, right? Uh, but the things that I think are really important are, so there's core competencies, which are everything from basic program management, timing and scheduling and understanding resources and priority trade-offs and how do you do all of that uh, to, and, and, and things like design sprints and how do you take uh, a potential user or current customer through a process to understand what, whether or not what you're building is the right thing for them. Those are all on the sort of competency side. But then there is your EQ, which is really how do you relate to people because the product managers, a lot of people say as a CEO of product, it's not. A product manager's role is to build and maintain relationships to move things forward without a lot of authority. And that's not for everyone, right? So how do I influence, uh, encourage, support, roll up my sleeves and help if I have to, uh, manage up, manage down, manage sideways, be technical enough uh, without telling an engineer how to do their job? Uh, be credible with my customers. So it's a really complicated 
role. And then you, again, factor that into the company culture, whether I have to, as a product manager, run with it versus execute on a founder's plan uh, versus be a founder's partner. Uh, again, early stage really depends. And in a big company, it's a very different model too. As a product manager, I might have a small piece of a bigger product uh, where I just have to be really um, intimately aware of everything that's required for that piece and how it fits into the bigger puzzle without having to know the whole puzzle versus an early stage company, you'd have to know the whole puzzle. So it's a complicated role. I had a student last year in a reflection essay at the end of the semester for our first semester said, uh, because of this course, now when somebody introduces me as a product manager, I have no idea what they do. And then went on to elaborate because I now understand it's a very complex role and it really depends on where you are. And she had a much better sense of uh, the opportunity that role could bring. But I had other students who said, you know, I don't like the ambiguity of the role. I, I want to know exactly linearly where I'm going and what it is. So it's not for everybody. Uh, but if you like that dynamic nature, then really the next step is where do you want to do it and how much span of control ownership do you want to have depending on where you go. And I would always say there's no degree in product management, yet you are teaching product management at HBS. So what evolved for academia to, to embrace product management as something that should be taught? Yeah, it's still pretty new. And I obviously I'm very biased, but I think the way we do it is the best way to do it. So there's a lot <laughs> of uh, schools that are teaching product management, again, more on the core competencies. How do you do a design sprint? How do you interview a customer? How do you, et cetera? Uh, we learn by doing. So this is a field course at Harvard Business School. Our students or my students apply to come in. They either apply as a founder or as a joiner. And we're very selective. I don't take people who have prior product management experience because they'll be bored. And you don't have to be technical to take my course because I'm going to teach you what you need to know. And if you come in, you join a team of three or four students and we build a product. And we spend the first semester doing discovery. Most teams pivot at least two or three times. They either had the wrong persona or they had the wrong problem to solve or job to be done. And we go through a lot of... Uh, concierge MVP or manual testing where they try a lot of things before they build anything. Uh, they typically are chomping at the bit to code and to hire an engineer and do. And I keep telling them, trust me, you will build the wrong thing because there's so much work to be done up front to validate your assumptions. So we go through a lot of assumption validation and testing without building for a semester. And then second semester, we have a fund, which I don't think there are any other programs out there like this where I actually have money. Uh, thank you, Harvard. And uh, my students get cash to hire an engineer. Most of them, it's it's the first time I've ever had to do something like that, hire a human in general, never mind an engineer, and most of them are not technical. So from an invaluable skill standpoint, that is such a core part of the course is where do you find them? How do you interview them? How do you manage them? Uh, it's, it's for them mind blowing. They go through the process and they realize like, wow, this is hard. So if I'm a founder and I'm going to go start my company, now I know how to do that because I never would have. Most, most founders I meet, if they haven't gone through the rigor of my program, like if someone had told me what it was going to take to learn how to hire, especially technical people, you have a great idea, but that doesn't mean that you're just going to hire some random engineer on Upwork or whatever and get it done, right? Uh, and the surprise factor of, I thought it was going to be like two weeks worth of work. And then the engineer came back and said, it's like two months. And I say, welcome to product management. You know, that's, you're learning exactly what I want you to learn. So it's very unique. And their final in May is a demoable product. So it's all software. It's all digital. And I have 15 new products that come out of the course every year, which is really fun. So uh, 
not only are you teaching product management, but you're also teaching people how to hire, which I think that's another skill set that you just don't graduate with that skill either. And it's so important. It's all about the people, right? Ideas are a dime a dozen, yet execution and the people. So right. when you start to build a company, how do you hire your first engineer? And like, so what, how do you advise people on making that selection and making sure that it hopefully leads to a right hire? So first off, it depends on what you're hiring them to do. So if it's, this is my potentially my first technical hire or even technical co-founder, uh, then it's not just about their competency and their technical skill, but it's also cultural fit. Who are we as a business, right? Your first 10 employees, in my mind, define your culture for the business. And if you keep those first 10 employees for the first couple of years of your business, that's it. Game over. That's what your culture is. And you ask anyone who's had a company for more than a couple of years and they will agree with you if they've scaled that that really is. So in the beginning, you're really testing for that more than anything of culture fit and competency. Are they credible? Um, then in terms of skill, we think we tend to make a mistake of cheap. It's, you know, you get what you pay for, right? So inexpensive could be great, uh, but you'll have someone who'll say they're a full stack engineer, just using engineers as an example. But full stack engineers are still really good at one particular thing, one end of the stack. Usually they're really good at back end, can kind of get away with front end or they're great UI, UX, but back end is, might have to get refactored when you hire more people. So we go through that process of understanding what do you really need? Do you need one engineer or do you need a designer and an engineer? Do you need a database person and a data scientist and a UI person? Like, so I think people don't realize it's not just, I need someone to code this. And then how much latitude do they have? If you're a technical founder, you might have opinions about how to build it. Uh, but if you hire engineers to go build it, you have to give them some latitude to build it the way they think in their in their code of choice or whatever they should build it so going through that process is tricky and hard uh testing the sort of soft side of, of interviewing and testing for cultural fit and um and i should say it's sort of additive to the culture we used to say that digital ocean is you know it's somebody who's additive versus matches us is really important uh, because that adds to how we become more creative in the long run and, and more efficient in the long run if we're we all have different opinions and ways we do things uh, and also, you know, again, being willing to pay for higher skilled employees because in the long run, you're going to actually save money. Uh, so it may seem cheap now, but now this person, because they're inexpensive, took longer to build it or they built the wrong thing or we can't communicate well with them. Uh, so it's looking at a lot of those different angles. Again, it's not just follow this recipe and you'll hire a great person. And, <laughs> and that's every founder I talk with. Like, it's so hard. It is. And guess what? You also can't drag it on forever. You know this because you do recruiting. You get uh, candidate fatigue and or they just get sick of you because you can't decide what you mm -hmm. want to do. Um, and you have to be willing to cut somebody loose if you made a bad hire. And in the beginning and most early stage companies, you will turn over your team multiple times in the beginning because either somebody was a great fit for right now. This, this worked really well for us right now, but they can't scale with the business or uh, we know a lot. We changed. We pivoted. So we don't need that skill anymore. Um, or at face value, they weren't who we thought they were. And, and, and again, I see this over and over with founders who wait too long to get rid of somebody. And um, once they do, they're so relieved, like, oh, we should have done that months ago, right? Uh, so that's hard. It's, it's one of the hardest parts of any job, even if you're not in an early stage company making, and I've hired hundreds of people in my career. And I think I'm pretty good now at within 10 minutes of an interview knowing if I want to work with somebody or not. And it has nothing to do with their skill. It's mm -hmm. like this person's either going to work with my team or they're not. And yeah. It's pretty clear. But that takes time.
usually the founders are the ones kind of the brains behind the product as the company's starting to get built. Mm. But at what point should a founder think about bringing in product management as a separate function of the company? Early. So I think product management is undersold in the beginning. I see a lot of companies, especially given what I do now, uh, who come to me too late and say, I think it's time for us to hire a product manager. Mm -hmm. And I think, oh, now you think it's time? (laughs) How many employees are you? Well, we're like 40 or even like 10. Um, If you're a product founder who really understands the user experience and understands to uh, how to streamline an MVP to get product market fit, which is rare, then you don't need a product manager. Otherwise, that's why you hire them. Uh, go do discovery. Go understand our customers. Go define what's really going to make them heroes at work. I talk a lot about that you build a product to make your, if it's B2B or even B2C, regardless of what it is, they're buying your product to be a hero, to solve a problem, to do a job. And if you don't understand how to do that for them, you know, you have somebody who's too much of a scientist or too much of a technical nerd, and I'm a fan of nerds, so that's not a negative, uh, that you or you like it. It's like, this is so cool. This is so great. But have you, do you know what it takes to go ask your target audience whether they're going to use it? And that's really going to meet their needs and how to be non-biased and how to, again, parse the wouldn't it be cool if with the, they will totally uh, be sad if we took this product away tomorrow, or they'd be willing to put down real money if we said to them, you no longer get a free beta, like you have to start paying for it. Uh, product managers know how to do that. Good ones know how to do that. So I think companies miss it. I think there's two roles companies tend to miss early stage that they should hire um, as fast as possible. One is somebody who handles all the people stuff. They wait too long for that. Uh, and you're nodding your head. <laughs> oh, I've seen so many stories. And, and so I'd love to get your opinion on this because I see – they're like, uh, recruiting. Um, can we have, can the office manager do that? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm just like, Oh my God. Like, yeah. So I have very strong beliefs that we blow it. Going back to my point on the first 10 employees set the tone of the business, uh, being extremely thoughtful in the beginning about everything from the candidate experience. Like, and I don't think you have to, a baby companies should not get a pass on this. You know, baby companies should still say, how fast do we get back to a candidate after we've read their, re- their resume? How fast do we schedule an interview? Who interviews them? What questions do we ask? When do we get back to them afterwards to tell them how they did? Mm-hmm. How do we make an offer? How do we decline? How do we onboard them? They have a whole blog post on this. That has to be thought about in the beginning. And if that's not a full-time person, you hire someone who knows how to do that and, and work that through with you. Uh, the guys over at Drift, and I met Dave Cancel and Elias uh, before they were even really they didn't even know what they were building for product. It was so great, but they've done this enough times. That was one of their first hires, right? I think it was like employee number four uh, was just somebody who was going to think about people. Yep. Keith, we had him on our podcast. Yeah, that's right. Um, So my point is, I think that and product management, that role, somebody who's thinking about people and it is not your office manager unless they have done it before, which some have. It's possible. Yep. Yep. So it's not that you write that off, but if they don't understand what that means, and then also even parsing the, the sourcing, I'm working with a company right now, we're talking a lot about sourcing candidates versus the candidate experience once you've got the, the pool that you want to work with. They're two different things, right? Mm-hmm. Some people are great at sourcing, absolutely fantastic at finding the people. And some people are great at candidate experience and closing candidates, finding passive people and actually getting them to quit their jobs and come work for you. Uh, those are developed skills. Those are not just your office manager or your founder doing. Um, so that's the one side. And then on the product management side, I think as soon as you say, 
we have an idea. How do we develop it, test it, refine our assumptions and prioritize our MVP? The sooner you have somebody who knows how to do that with you, the faster you'll move. And companies waste so much time and money building the wrong thing. I tell my students when they come into my class, I guarantee you, and it happens every semester, 75% of you will not build the thing that you think you're going to build at the beginning of the semester. You won't. And most of them, again, go from frustrated that they're moving too slow to at the end of the semester saying, we totally would have built the wrong thing, mm-hmm. right? Because we just didn't know how to think about it, right? And were they in the same space? Probably maybe the same persona or maybe a different type of buyer than they thought, but still in the same space, but not at all what they thought they were going to build. So that's how PM can make the difference early. So I would say as soon as you're really sort of gelling around an idea and you're going to start talking to customers and wireframe and, you know, if it's digital, uh, get a PM or get PM support guidance. So the, the other piece that you mentioned earlier is you had have done some angel investments. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you look for when it comes to, you know, investing in a team, a product idea? Like, like what, what's the criteria that would get you to write your own angel investment? Yeah. So for me to make an investment, first and foremost is the team. It's no different than most VCs, right? If you believe in the team and you uh, feel that they're healthy and, uh, collaborative and supportive and have the right chemistry, then they're going to build anything. And I've had been very lucky to work with some co-founders and uh, leaders of companies that really have demonstrated that just, um, I don't care what they build. They're just, they're going to figure it out together and they're going to make it happen. They, they execute, they're passionate, they're good leaders, they're great communicators, uh, all the things, right? Uh, and then second to that, for me personally, my investments are majority uh, change the world type products, things that are really going to help people live better, um, improve the environment. Uh, Those are the kinds of things that I prefer to invest in. So things where I really feel like they're going to make an impact in a deep way versus these are a bunch of people who just created a company to make money. Granted, I worked for two of those companies that did that, but I like to think, you know, the internet has changed the world. Uh, Let's, let's get real, right? I definitely did that. And VMware, for, for me, I really, uh, there's two things I really loved about that business. And, and I look for that kind of essence in companies that I do invest in that are not so much uh, uh, environmental or people play is uh, being very thoughtful about who they're going to be as a business and how they're going to give back and change in some way. So for VMware in the beginning, it was just energy. We were consolidating data centers and, and optimizing around energy usage in the beginning, which was really important. Uh, but we also became a company. Our second CEO, Paul Moritz, was very, uh, very, very committed to giving back to the communities that we worked and lived in uh, and made uh, not only uh, philanthropy, but community service part of a requirement in your job at the company. And a certain amount of time per year had to be committed to those types of things. And so I do look for that, too. If it's a company who's building something interesting on the technology side, but what I like is their culture or their commitment to giving back or, or doing something meaningful to the communities they're serving that that can be important for me to invest as well. So you've gone deep as far as, uh, you know, the, 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 the statement, you know, pay it forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've definitely done a lot as it relates to that, being a mentor and helping out startups, regardless if they're an investment or not. So since you kind of, you know, kind of went deep into the Boston ecosystem, how, how has it evolved, you know, since you kind of stuck your nose in it? How has the Boston ecosystem evolved since I got plugged in? Yeah. 
Uh, tremendously. So I think when I first came out at VMware in 2013, things were just starting to percolate with everything from, again, Techstars and, and Bolt and some of the other interesting incubators and accelerator programs that were just getting started. Even the iLab here at, at Harvard was just starting to become a thing. Uh, and I think VCs were skeptical initially on, you know, what was happening in Boston and would founders really want to be here and uh, could we do B2C or, or are we just, you know, hard tech uh, community? And I think we've really evolved in a few ways. We have a, a phenomenal support ecosystem of uh, serial entrepreneurs or angel investors who are one-time founders who made a lot of money or whatever, who really are paying it forward. It's something I see. It's not, there's just a couple of us. There's really this lovely network of humans that just really want Boston to be successful and are committed to doing that, which is exceptional. I don't think you see that in other cities. And I spent a lot of time in New York. I, I definitely saw it in New York when I was at DigitalOcean, uh, that similar thing, but it's a massive city, right? So it's, people, not everybody know here, it's like, this is a double-edged sword. Everyone kind of knows each other, uh, and that's a good thing, but everyone kind of knows each other. So, um, so it's an interesting space, but uh, the academic community is, you know, a huge compliment to what's happening here, right? The things that are coming out of not just MIT and, and Harvard, uh, but Northeastern and BU and Tufts and there's just uh, Babson and, you know, there's just some really phenomenal things happening at the universities that no other city in the country can say they have, right, in terms of the entrepreneurship programs and, and um, students and founders that are coming out of the universities and staying here and building their products here, which is terrific. Uh, and you're an investor in a company that I think is a perfect example of that love pop, right? So Wambi and John, right? Naval architecture, uh, HBS. Now they're disrupting the greeting card industry and much bigger vision beyond that. Just phenomenal. Yeah, they are one of my, I mean, I love all, everyone I've invested, I love. So I don't have a favorite. <laughs> but, uh, but John and Wambi are really an interesting story. Like they, uh, I met them here as, when I was just a guest for now my course. And I was just a guest in the course. And uh, Wambi, my famous story is Wambi came up to me after uh, my guest lecture with a love pop card. He wasn't doing love pop in the class. He was just uh, learning how to be a good product founder in the class. And said, I built this card. We're, we're starting a business around this. We need your advice. And I said, I don't know anything about retail or cards or anything. I don't know. How am I going to help you? And he's like, well, you know, we don't know anything about starting a business or like scaling a business and all the operational stuff. And you know that stuff. Can we talk? And then I helped them get into Techstars. I knew about an open spot at Techstars Boston and it was very, 11th hour kind of stuff. And he and John joined Techstars, which was great. And I only started uh, as an advisor with them and um, really helped John scale as a COO and work with Wambi on a few things. And it wasn't until their last round uh, where I just said, you know what, you guys, I love you. And I really love what you're building. And I believe in them as co-founders. They're exceptional when it comes to how they support each other, challenge each other, how they lead, how they learn, like they, they learn when they make mistakes, they acknowledge them and they get better. And I said, I want in, not because I want to make a ton of money on Love Pop, but I want to be part of your story. Uh, and most of the companies I put money in, that's, that's it. I just want to be part of the story because it really is exceptional human beings. And I don't know if you advised him on the recruiting piece, but if you did, he did a great job because I worked with Wambi to make their first hire uh, director of 
uh, digital marketing, so acquisition. And he took it so serious. It was like, it was refreshing. And some founders I work with, it's the same, but I just, you know, we're talking about Wambi. And he, he, it was just a great experience for each candidate, uh, regardless if they hired or not. Uh, he, he was instantaneously responsive on everything. It was just like, and he made a great hire and, and he's done a good job. Yeah, they, they really are. Uh, I think one of the examples for them and some of the other companies that I work with, I think that makes a difference is founders who have their own convictions and their opinions solicit, and this is hard for founders, they solicit advice from lots of different people. And in the end, they decide, and it's very clear to me, it's their decision versus founders who blow the wind. And so the blow of the wind is, we had a conversation yesterday, you just came into the office uh, or sat down for coffee with me and you have a completely different viewpoint. Where did that come from? And I find out because they just had coffee with someone else and now they have a completely different idea of what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say you shouldn't inform your decisions through talking to different people, but at the end of the day, stick to your convictions, wait, get everybody else's opinions and allow that to for, inform your decision, but it's your decision. It's not because the last person you had coffee with just told you you should do it a different way. Yeah. And I see that over and over again. And they're a great example as well as some of the other uh, founders that I work with where uh, they'll say, you know, we heard you, but we also heard from these other people. And what we came down to was we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit of your thing and it's a little bit of their thing, or we're not going to do your thing at all. We're going to do this other thing because it seems better for us. I love that. You don't have to do my thing. Like, right. that's great. Run with that. Sounds like a great idea. Keep me posted. Uh, it's the ones who either don't know how to tell you they don't like your idea or, again, they keep changing over and over again. And that slows them down tremendously because they just can't commit and say, no, this feels right. And maybe it's just instinct. I heard from everybody. I don't agree with anyone. I'm going to do what I want to go do. Some of the best companies in the world were started by founders like Steve Jobs, who didn't listen to anybody and just said, no, this is what feels right to me and I'm going to do it. So they're a great example of that. Great advice. Well, Julia, thanks so much for taking the time out to share all your words of wisdom. I could talk to you about product management, hiring and all these things for days, but um, I do want to thank you for your time and uh, I'm sure we'll be seeing you soon. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.